Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us, whether it's your first time here or your last time here. Hopefully it's not, but uh, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us this morning. Now, last week in Romans 4, in the middle of our summer in Rome, the Apostle Paul used the example of Abraham to make his case that sinners, whether they are Jew or Gentile, can only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not works, not works of the Old Testament law, not works of your own morality or charity or goodness or rightness or perfection. None of your works and none of my works can justify us. And more than once, Paul alluded to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the good news is that believers in Jesus, like Abraham before us, we too have righteousness credited to our accounts. We too are justified by faith in Christ. We are declared to be in good standing with God. We believe God's words recorded in the New Testament about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's because of who Jesus is and what he has done that sinners like us, from all nations, languages, and walks of life, can be justified. We too can be declared friends of God, like Abraham before us. No matter who we are, what we've done, or where we've come from. But as we move forward today in the book of Romans, Paul starts to shift just a little bit. Chapters 1 through 4 are usually considered to be one section of Romans, and then chapters 5 through 8 are a new section. And in chapter 5 this morning, Paul is going to briefly sum up what we've learned so far, but then he's going to again dip his toe in the Old Testament to illustrate the good news of the gospel that we believe. But this time, Paul does not take us back to the story of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Paul goes even further back than that to the story of a man named Adam, the father of all mankind. And Paul does that because talking about Adam helps us better understand who we were before we believed in Christ, but it also reminds us of who we are now by faith in Christ. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for summer. Father, thank you that there are people here this morning who are worshiping you. Uh, We know there are other people in this church, and summer is a busy time. People are traveling. uh, People are seeing families, seeing friends, celebrating holidays. Uh, But Father, thank you for the people who are here. Thank you that week in and week out, there's a group of people here gathered to worship your name. Whether it's 20 of us or 50 of us or 100 of us, this building is full of people on Sunday mornings. And it's a privilege and an honor to be part of it. And it's just a joy to worship with my family in Christ today. And Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we read from your word. I simply ask that you give us what we need. Uh, There are people in this room who need to be challenged. There are people in this room who need to be convicted or encouraged or reminded or comforted. 
And Father, your word can do all of those things at once. Uh, And so, Father, we entrust ourselves to your word today. I ask that you help us allow your word to examine us uh, just as much as we examine it. And Father, again, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose and ascended and one day will return. And Father, we ask that you find us faithful when that day comes. Again, we love you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we've spent a lot of time these past four or five weeks talking about the theology of justification. But as Paul begins Romans chapter 5, he gives us a few slightly more practical ramifications of what our justification really means. So he starts by saying that we have peace with God. Peace with God. Now when you and I think of peace, we may simply think of a lack of violence, conflict. We think of it like a ceasefire in a war. But in scripture, peace is much bigger than that. Peace is not just the absence of bad things, conflict, violence, disagreement. Peace is the presence of good things. Peace is a state of well-being, a state of health, a state of flourishing. And then on top of that, sometimes we find ourselves thinking of peace as some subjective feeling that comes and goes. The way you feel when you're walking on a beach at sunset or looking out over some quiet meadow. You feel very peaceful in that moment, but then you get back to normal life and the peace is gone. But our peace with God is not some subjective feeling that comes and goes or waxes or wanes. Our peace with God is an objective reality established by Christ, written in his blood on the cross. Our relationship with God has changed because of what Christ has done for us. We are now at peace with God. And we'll find out why that's such a big deal here in just a few minutes. On top of that, Paul says that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So Paul continues to stress over and over and over again that our newfound good standing with God is entirely a gift of his generosity. It's nothing he owed us like a wage. It's nothing that we earn for ourselves, nothing that we're entitled to. We have been graciously granted access into this new standing with God that we never could have merited on our own, no matter how hard we worked or how hard we tried. And because of that, in this grace in which we stand, there is no room for boasting. We didn't gain access into this good standing because of anything that we did. If it depended on our works, our deeds, we would never get in the front door. 
Paul stresses that over and over and over again because his audience in Rome needed to hear it over and over and over again. And so does Paul's audience in Fishers. We need to hear that over and over and over again. And then we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That phrase, the glory of God, likely refers to being in God's presence in eternity. And if you've ever read any of the other biblical passages about God's glory, especially some of the famous Old Testament passages, the imagery used to describe it is nothing short of stunning. We read about a temple and thrones and angels flying and voices singing and the ground shaking when God speaks. And that's not just some far off dream. That's not just some naive desire that may or may not come true one day. You and I can rejoice that someday we will see God's glory firsthand. What a promise to look forward to. And that's especially true when you consider our sufferings. Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Being justified by God doesn't mean that we'll be spared from all the hardships, all the pains of life in a fallen world. The hardships and the pains that we have grown all too familiar with. Christians still get sick. We still lose jobs. We still face persecutions. We still experience financial struggles. We still hurt. We still mourn. We still suffer. But while we will still suffer, justified people can view worldly sufferings in a different light. God can use those sufferings to grow us, shape us, and mature us into the people he calls us to be now and the people we one day will be in eternity. We can even rejoice in those sufferings, as strange as that sounds, remembering that no worldly sorrow, no loss, no pain can threaten our good standing with God. It is the realest thing that we can cling to, and it is not dependent upon our environment. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. So if you put it all together, Paul says that we are people of hope. Paul used that word several times in the verses we just read. We are people of hope. And again, it's not hope in the sense of blindly, naively, or desperately just kind of hoping for the best, even though deep down we're nervous or fearful or a little bit skeptical that the best is actually going to happen. The hope that we have is the kind of confidence, the kind of assurance that regardless of what happens to us in this life, Our justification, our peace with God, is steady and secure and unfailing. Because our Lord is steady and secure and unfailing. So this is who we are now in Christ. Justified by faith, at peace with God, granted access into this grace, rejoicing in the hope of glory in the future, and even rejoicing in our sufferings now. We are people of hope, and our hope is not in vain. You need to remember that every single day, and I need to remember that every single day as well. So when we find ourselves in the midst of the stormy seas of life in a fallen world, remember that you have peace with God. 
When you find yourself overwhelmed by the distractions or the sufferings of this fallen world, remember the glory of God that awaits you. And when you're tempted to give in to doubt or cynicism or fear, remember that justified people are hopeful people. That is who we are now in Christ. We have been filled with the love of God, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit himself. It's who we are now, and that is reason for rejoicing, and that is reason for hope. But while we're on the subject of who we are now, it's also worthwhile to step back for just a moment to remember who we were, who we were before we were justified. And that's what Paul goes into in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So who are we? We're justified. We're saved. We're reconciled. We'll talk more about that word reconciled here in a few minutes. That's who we are now. But who were you? Before you met Christ. Well, in verse 6, Paul uses two words that aren't exactly flattering to describe us before we met Christ. Weak and ungodly. Weak and ungodly. We were helpless. Even worse, we were godless. Paul says we were the kinds of people who, by any worldly standard, aren't really worth dying for. And yet, at the right time, Christ died for weak and ungodly sinners, people who had nothing to offer. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, when we had nothing to bring to the table, Christ died for us. And God continues to love us even though now we have nothing to bring to the table of our own accord. But that is the essence of the gospel. That is the essence of the good news. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you know, those words weak and ungodly are bad enough. Not exactly flattering. But the word that Paul uses to describe us in verse 10, before we were justified, the word in verse 10 is even worse. In verse 1, Paul said that we now have peace with God. Peace with God. And you know, that phrase becomes even more powerful when you consider who we were before. Because in verse 10, Paul says, before we were justified, we were enemies of God. Enemies. Think about that word. An enemy is someone who actively fights against God, whether we realized it fully at the time or not. We were hostile to God's rule, 
seeking to undermine him and elevate ourselves. We were rebels working against his rightful claim to worship and obedience. So it's no wonder then that Paul again and again in Romans says that we deserve God's wrath. We did because we were God's enemies. But now we're justified. Now we are at peace. Now the war is over because God sent his son to die for us. We are no longer God's enemies, but we are his friends, his sons, his daughters, his servants, not his enemies. God has graciously reconciled us to himself rather than justifiably annihilating us. And be honest, have you ever considered who you used to be in those terms? That phrase, an enemy of God. And have you ever stopped and considered that if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, at least according to the book of Romans, you are still, currently, at this moment, right now, an enemy of God. You know, we don't typically think about it that way. We would much rather comfort ourselves by saying that, you know, we're all God's children. Or some other pithy, feel-good, hallmark card statement. But Romans says that we are God's enemies. Even in the church, we tend to avoid words like sin and rebellion. Because those words paint us as God's enemies. We overuse a word like brokenness. Because brokenness makes us sound more like victims and not so much enemies. But Paul makes it clear that before we were reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, we were God's enemies. And if not for the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we would still be God's enemies. Now, is that scary to think about? Absolutely it is. It is frightening to consider yourself an enemy of the God who created the universe simply by speaking. He's not someone whose bad side you want to be on. But knowing who you were before Christ makes the good news of who you are now in Christ that much more breathtaking. God didn't just send his son to die for victims of sin. Though we are victims of sin, God sent his son to die for perpetrators of sin. We weren't just weak. We weren't just ungodly. We weren't just disobedient. We were God's enemies. And yet in his kindness and mercy, at the right time, Christ died for sinners, enemies like you and me. Now Paul's been assuming that this whole book of Romans... In the first few chapters, the first few weeks, Paul said again and again and again that all people are sinners. Jew and Gentile, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All people are guilty. All people deserve wrath. Paul just assumed it repeatedly. And many people in Paul's day and age wouldn't have really questioned that assumption. But maybe you have. Maybe you read the book of Romans and you think, well, who is Paul to say that we are all sinners? I mean, who is this guy to say that we are all enemies of God? How does he say that with such confidence? He doesn't know me. 
Well, if we read why Paul says that. And according to Paul, it all goes back to Adam. Adam is the guy in Genesis, married to Eve, living in the Garden of Eden. The first humans in God's world called to tend his creation, live in harmony with God, live in harmony with one another. But Adam and Eve sinned. They were lured by Satan himself into a mutiny against God, breaking his command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam's sin had a devastating ripple effect on creation itself and a devastating ripple effect that reaches all the way to you and to me. And that's what Paul talks about as we continue in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul says that as a result of Adam's sin, death spread throughout the world. It spread in a physical sense, and then Adam and Eve would eventually return to the dust from which they came. But it also spread in a spiritual sense, in that Adam and Eve were banned from God's presence in the garden. And Paul says that, you know, the reason we're all sinners is because we're all Adam's descendants. That may be the one thing that we all have in common across time and space. We can all, in some roundabout way, find our beginnings in Adam. We can find our beginnings in the Garden of Eden. And so Paul's made the case in Romans that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, Whether you had God's written revealed law or you didn't, you're a sinner. And Paul knows that because everyone dies. It's the universal issue because sin is a universal issue. Paul says that we are all sinners because we can all be traced back to Adam, the first sinner. Now, this is a notoriously difficult passage because it brings up all kinds of theological and ethical and philosophical questions. And it's often been reduced to the term original sin, original sin. And Christians throughout history have wrestled over the doctrine of original sin with the debates often coming back to this passage. Romans 5 is the place to turn to when you're talking about original sin. And so people read Romans 5 and they ask questions like, hold on, wait a minute. Am I held responsible for Adam's sin? Am I guilty for something that he did? I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. I didn't eat from that tree. So why should I be held responsible? And if I am, is that fair? Is that just? Is that appropriate that I would be condemned for someone else's sin? You could even frame it as a chicken and egg type question. Am I a sinner because I sinned or do I sin because I'm a sinner? Which came first? Now, some of that may sound like splitting hairs and some of it probably is splitting hairs. But for now, it's safe to say that we are all descendants of Adam. We are all sinners, whether you want to emphasize his sin in the Garden of Eden or your own sin in your own life. 
We've got the market cornered on sin either way. And as a result of that, we are all subject to death. Again, death is a universal experience because sin is a universal problem. We are all descendants of Adam. At least that's who we were. But look at verse 15 as Paul continues. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's referring to Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Else who ever has or ever will walk this earth. We have all suffered from the results of his trespass. New man, Jesus Christ, act of righteousness for that truth. We would pay for Adam's sin. Paul said that all men were condemned because of one man's trespass. Is that really fair? What you want. But I'd also encourage you to be careful if fairness is what you want. Because Christ taking the wrath that we deserve on the cross and his righteousness credited to our account when we are justified isn't exactly fair either. We should be very careful to want a gospel of fairness because the gospel is not built on fairness. The gospel is built on the grace of God. And thank God that that is the case. And it's because we've been justified by faith in Christ. Because we've been united to Christ, that we receive all the benefits Paul talked about. Adam brought judgment and alienation and death. But Jesus brings justification, reconciliation, and life. Adam's trespass led to condemnation. But Jesus' one act of righteousness leads to eternal life. We are sinners because we are descendants of Adam. But we are righteous because we are believers in Jesus. And as long as we are still in this sinful flesh, we will still suffer, we will still sin, and one day we will die. But all along we have confidence that we are justified. That we have peace with God because of what Christ has done for us. And we have been united to him. So I think if you take it all and sum it all up, you could say that Romans 5 is a passage about identity. It's a passage about who you were before you were justified, 
and who you are now. And Paul talks about identity in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well. We see Paul say in verse 16, and you'll hear some things that sound familiar or similar to Romans 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone, was, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, there's that, minute, there's that word again, reconciled. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those who are in Christ are no longer to be regarded only according to the flesh. We are no longer just descendants of Adam. We are new creations, reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, the one who took our sin in order that we might become his righteousness. So I guess the question is this, pretty simple. Who are you? Who are you? Are you still one with Adam by birth and all the curses that he brought with him? Are you still defined or mastered by the flesh? Are you still under the reign of sin and death? Marked by disobedience, bound for judgment and condemnation. Are you still an enemy of God? Or are you one with Christ by faith? Are you a new creation of the Holy Spirit? Have you been reconciled to God? Are you a recipient of all the benefits that Christ brought with him? Do you have reason to rejoice in both this life and the next, even through your sufferings? Do you look forward to the hope of glory? Do you have peace with God? Again, this passage is about identity. So who are you? Who were you? If you're one with Christ, you have reason to rejoice. And if you aren't, you have reason to tremble. So think about who you are. And if you're already a believer in Christ... Don't forget who you were. Remember that it's through him that you have obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand. It's through him that you rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence, but we have been welcomed back in. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but we have been reconciled to God. And it all comes through Jesus Christ. And it is who we are in both this life and the next. Justified people and people of hope. Thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. 
Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. As we've been reading the book of Romans, I've found myself challenged and almost a little bit uh, frustrated at times. I felt like I'm preaching the same sermon four or five weeks in a row, and it kind of feels like I am, and maybe people in this room feel like I am, but in some ways that's really good for us, because we need to be reminded of who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of our justification. We need to be reminded of our peace with you. I need to be reminded of it. It's so tempting to want to hear more about what we should do and how we should live and and five steps to a healthier marriage or five steps to a healthier work life or all these different felt needs that are often addressed. But at the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, we need to know who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what you've told us over and over and over again in the book of Romans, especially these first few weeks. And so, Father, help us take that as we leave this place, as we go out into the world ahead of us, whatever you have in store for us. I pray that we would remember who we are by your grace. Remember that we have peace with you that is unshakable, that is steady, that is firm, that is solid, that is far more steady and far more firm and far more solid than anything we might be tempted to rest in in this world. And, Father, we thank you that your son's broken body and shed blood secured our peace with you. Again, it wasn't cheap, but the price has been paid for our sins. And we rejoice both now and in eternity that we've been reconciled to you. Again, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for these reminders. We thank you for this truth. Help us never forget who we are in your son. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.